it's always better when times are good to look critically at our budgets and aggressively remove any expenses that really don't need to take place. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Skorupski, here at Johns Hopkins, and you've tuned in for our ending of the Triple H series, The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. Now, if you've been a longtime listener to the Faculty Factory Podcast, you'll recognize today's guest, Dr. Yuval Barr Or, Hi, Yuval. Hello, Kim. Go to the facultyfactory.org or the podcast series and zoom backwards to episode number 64, where Dr. Barr Orr talked about the basics of personal finance. And so there's a lot of good meat there. And he's here to do a kind of follow up on that. But I first want to start with Yuval. Why don't you tell everybody who you are at Hopkins and what you do here? Yes, I'm an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School, where I mostly teach investments and wealth management courses. I also founded the Pillars of Wealth Personal Financial Literacy Initiative for Medical Households, which is aimed at helping those households make better financial decisions. The initiative is housed at the pillarsofwealth.com website, which contains lots of information all freely available. Everyone's welcome to visit, uh, do whatever reading you want, download documents and templates, and make use of the site. Very, very generous, Yuval. Uh, again, that's pillarsofwealth.com. And Yuval has authored seven books. He, as he mentioned or didn't really mention, he has done a lot of work in faculty development for us here in the School of Medicine for our medical professionals and giving seminars and workshops on uh, finance basics. So he he's the guru. He's the guy who does all this for us in the School of Medicine. And I'm so excited when I reached out and he said, well, Kim, do you think you'd have any interest? Do you think your listeners would want to know anything more about, especially in light of COVID, what's going on with um, investments and finance? Great. Thank you, Kim. The last meeting, we talked about personal finance basics, and I'd like to revisit some of those within the context of COVID, effectively emphasizing why they're so important, because it's during a time of crisis that we usually find out why certain advice is wise. So the first item I'd like to talk to was the importance of maintaining a rainy day fund. And just as a quick review, what is a rainy day fund? It's money we set aside in the form of cash or assets that can be easily converted into cash to be used for unexpected expenses, sometimes also referred to as an emergency fund, the rainy day fund. Examples of unexpected needs would be roof springing a leak in the home, car breaking down and needing an expensive repair or a car that has to be completely replaced, and other events such as a pandemic sweeping through the globe and forcing people to stay home where their incomes decline or go to zero, where they have to worry about additional medical care expenses and so on. Yeah, and child care was huge. So we saw a lot of our, our faculty, our early career faculty, you know, throw their hands up, wait a minute, closer. Schools are closed and daycares aren't in operation. I can, and that was a lot of um, scrambling to not only find resources to be able to provide care in home or out of home, but then the, the money, like who nobody planned for that outlay of expenses. So that's a perfect example. You can never plan for a pandemic, I guess. 
right? So those of us who were able to maintain that rainy day fund were, of course, in better shape. It meant that we could meet all of these challenges, including the pandemic and including what Kim pointed out, the importance of childcare resources. All of those become easier when you have the cash available. If you don't, then you're you're stuck. Effectively, you're left with, with poor choices, including having to resort to credit cards, which we know have really, really nasty fees on the order of 20 to 25% interest, which is effectively ruinous if we have to maintain balances for a long time. Alternatively, we have to sell some of our other assets if we don't have cash because we have to raise cash. And often we're disrupting long-term investments that were part of our long-term planning. And we don't want to do that either because then we're depriving ourselves of future income, of future asset growth. So the wisest solution is in advance to have that rainy day fund. And COVID exacerbated cash needs for just about every household. Right. Are you going to tell us how to, what is the rule of thumb calculation for how much should be in our rainy day funds? Absolutely. Rules of thumb are typically to maintain three to six months of salary. And there are differing opinions as to whether those should be gross salary or net salary. Other calculations suggest that we just write down all of the necessary expenses we have in a given month and then maintain several months of that total. The bottom line is that the correct number is very household specific. It depends on what other assets you have, how many breadwinners there are, what other resources you have. If you have other family members, parents, siblings who are in reasonably decent financial shape and and you're a close-knit family and you know you can rely on them, that could mean you could get away with a smaller emergency or rainy day fund. Uh, But for many households, those are not possibilities. And that argues that they, for their own protection, should maintain higher amounts. So uh, as a summary statement, it really depends. And uh, it's all about the household specifics. But these are guidelines, the three to six month guidelines are at least useful for creating some structure that every household can build on. And you've all do we where do we keep that rainy day fund? Do we have it easily accessible in a checking account or a savings account? Or is this something we put in a CD? Do we stuff it in between the mattress and the box springs? Where do we keep that money? Interestingly enough, it's all of the above. Everything the mattress? You, really? everything you mentioned, <laughs> including potentially the mattress, although I don't highly recommend that. <laughs> All of those are traditional elements of the rainy day fund. They're known as cash or cash equivalents. So they begin with the actual bills and coins that we have in our pockets, and some of us may have under our mattresses, and they extend to checking account balances, saving account balances, certificates of deposit, and also potentially mutual fund, money market mutual fund balances. As long as none of those holdings are in tax-advantaged retirement accounts, because we can't just pull that money out. We may be subject to penalties or tax payments. Mm. So we include all of those readily accessible cash or easy to convert into cash assets in the rainy day fund. Okay. Got it. Thank you. And in fact, it's advisable to have a diverse set of such assets because if you keep that money under the mattress or in a checking account, you're effectively getting no return on that. Because if any of you are aware of what return, what interest rate the bank pays us for checking accounts, it's a big fat zero. Right. It's pretty much the same as putting money under the mattress. So we want our money to be as productive as possible and refining our financial planning requires us to look at the rainy day fund component. So instead of keeping $20,000 in a checking account, let's just assume for the sake of argument, 20,000 is our targeted amount 
for what we want to have in readily available cash as emergency or rainy day cash, it might make sense to keep two or $3,000 of that in our checking account and maybe $5,000 in a savings account where maybe we're getting half a percent to 1% interest and perhaps the rest in certificates of deposit. And those certificates of deposit could range in maturities from three months to six months to a year or more. And typically, the longer the maturity, the more interest we can get. So that way we're 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 trying we're maintaining access to cash which is the point of the rainy day fund but we're also trying to making some effort to squeeze out as much return as we possibly can from those funds. The situation in in recent years of course has been one where interest rates are so low that it's difficult to find any avenue for rainy day funds that's going to pay us any decent amount of interest. That's simply a fact we have to live with that. Uh, but it doesn't change the logic of having our cash in different types of assets so that on the margin, wherever possible, we're getting at least some return because all of that adds up. It's $10, $20, $50 here and there can make a difference. If that's every month multiplied over multiple years, that becomes hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. So that type of additional efficiency can serve us well. And the, the key is just to be aware of it and then to make it happen. There's another dimension or angle when it comes to rainy day funds. And that is that, especially in, in the downturn that causes financial markets to decline, we can now opportunistically use some of that cash to buy, to invest at lower prices. Now, of course, you don't want to commit your rainy day fund aggressively to risky stock market investments when markets crash, because you still may need some of that as rainy day funds. But once you feel that there's been some stabilization in, in the markets and in, in uh, job uh, scenarios and so on, which certainly were very relevant uh, and remain relevant for many of us during COVID. But once you feel that there's some stability there, your job seems safe, income stream seems safe, even if it's, if it's somewhat reduced, that could be a time to opportunistically say, you know what, I'm going to take a third or a quarter of the rainy day fund because markets have declined by 40%, and I'm going to invest those thousands of dollars. And those who did that, going fast forwarding 18 months benefited significantly because markets didn't just recover those 40% losses, they roared back and we've been setting records the last few months. So that's yet another way to, on the margin, make more efficient use of money, effectively buy low when we have those low buying opportunities. Mm. And that, of course, the name of the game is as soon as possible, replenish the rainy day fund to a level that you feel most comfortable with, and then you're ahead of the game. You've got some investments that were made at lower prices, which have now appreciated. Your rainy day fund is healthy, and you're ready to face the world. The next item I wanted to talk about was the imperative to invest in a diverse set of assets. The emphasis here is on the word diverse. By diverse, we mean investing over multiple geographies, multiple sectors, industry sectors. And that allows us the greatest amount of risk diversification or risk reduction while still preserving a healthy expected return in the future. And that really is one of the leading principles that we should follow in our investments is to engage in diversified investments. Here's the counterexample. If, in, if instead of having these broadly diversified, and I should add low fee investments out there, we decided that we were going to invest in our favorite restaurant chain mm -hmm. or airline, or cruise line or hotel chain and COVID hits and every one of those industries gets hammered, mm. our investments are in big trouble. Yep. Not hold diversified investments. Now, we don't know in advance 
whether it's going to be a pandemic or a natural disaster or whatever it is that's going to rear its ugly head. We don't know in advance. That's why we plan and give ourselves options. Because we don't know, we can't predict in advance which sectors, which companies will do better. But if anybody could do that truly reliably, they would be fabulously wealthy. Fabulous. So the, Love the fabulously. <laughs> so the only solution in advance, before we know what happens, everybody's a genius in hindsight, but the only solution in advance is to diversify our investments. Don't just buy hotels because you love staying in hotels, or don't just buy cruise lines because you love cruises, and they've been very successful, fun activities for you in the past. Invest in everything. Mm. And that takes us back to those diversified investments, which typically are employed in our retirement plans, in our children's 529 plans, in our own brokerage accounts. If we have extra money beyond retirement plans, we buy as passive investors, which I always recommend. We buy indexed funds, low-cost, high-diversification funds that weather all of these town downturns better than any one individual stock or sector. Just, I want to put a little thought bubble that popped into my head naturally. As you're talking about diversifying investments, I'm thinking, hmm, on the podcast just last week, we had Dr. Garima Sharma. And I'm thinking, here is just another example how diversity is good. So we're talking diversity culturally, educationally, et cetera, et cetera and diversity in investment. So, geez, it sounds like we can't go too far wrong if we keep being mindful of diversity. Continue. <laughs> yes, wise words. But there, there's another dimension of diversification. I talked about the very traditional diversification across stock funds and, and by extension, bond funds. Real estate is another area into which we can diversify. And of course, some of the companies, the stocks we invest in are, are real estate companies. So we're getting some real estate exposure there. But many of us, if we own a home or an investment property or a second home, a vacation home, we have exposure to real estate. Of course, it's very non-diversified because we have just one property or maybe two. So real estate can give us some desirable exposure to yet another asset class that behaves differently from stocks and bonds and therefore also gives us more diversification. But in itself, if we only have one property, it's not very diverse. I'm just making that as a side point. But my main point here is that in addition to our stocks and bonds, having some real estate can be. In particular, having some real estate can be helpful when we anticipate some inflationary environments because real estate tends to do reasonably well in inflationary periods. In addition to that, some folks may be aware that over the last few years, in fact, over the last decade, we've been in very favorable interest rate environments, but in the last couple of years, in almost unprecedented low interest rate. And that meant that real estate became an even better opportunity. And we saw some of that paying off because COVID forced many people out of cities and into suburbs. And the prices in those outlying areas increased dramatically over the past year, year and a half. In fact, record rates, record annualized rates for several uh, months over the summer, most recently. And that means that anyone who decided to move into real estate just as COVID was beginning or just before that ended up benefiting from relatively low rates and ended up owning assets that appreciated significantly over the last year or two. So yet another example of diversification being helpful in this particular case, diversifying by purchasing real estate. And But can you, let's pause here because I think we all can think of stories and I could rattle off six scenarios in my own neighborhood here in 
downtown Baltimore in the Canton neighborhood where properties went uh, above asking. You know, there were competitions and houses would go up for sale on Monday and on Wednesday they're sold for 50,000, 75,000, 80,000 over asking. So it's good for the sellers, but is it really good for the buyers? Very good point. And I should have emphasized actually that all my conversation here is meant to be, how could we have better prepared for COVID? What could we have done in advance that would have prepared us? So really I should have been clearer in stating that if two to five, two to eight, two to 10 years ago, we didn't invested in real estate, we still would have been in relatively low real uh, interest rate environments. And those low real estate interest rate environments should have called our attention to this opportunity long ago. Mm. Had we done that, we would now be sitting on assets that have relatively low cost to us in terms of mortgage rates, and which benefited from everything you've just described, all those dramatic price increases. Right. Darn it. It is also I'm behind the curve again on these things. Where were you five years ago, Yuval? I was doing all of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I've been saying the same things. (laughs) Yeah, that 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 is that that's such a I would love to have you come back up to talk about uh, you know how does one even get into buying real estate, investing in real estate? That to me is gosh, I, I need to sit and think hard about that because everybody I know who is seems to be really comfortable. One of the common denominators is they own property. I'm like, how do you mean you own houses? Oh yes, I have a house here and a house there and a house there, and that just blows my mind. I kind of I can't imagine that responsibility, but it's it seems to be a thing. I'd be delighted to spend some time talking about that. I've had some personal experience there. So I'm going to move on to the next item, the next basic personal finance exhortation to live below our means. Mm-hmm. This was certainly a theme we talked about in our last meeting. Right. And we also know that almost every household suffered income reduction due to COVID. Some were completely wiped out. They lost their jobs and had no income. But even those who remained fully employed, I I don't know anyone whose income didn't decrease because there were speaking opportunities they turned down, overtime that wasn't available, et cetera. Right. And people may not have been paid bonuses. And when we rely on those sources of income, as we normally naturally would, as we're preparing our budget. Uh, its absence, even if it's not a complete reduction to zero, its absence is painful. So many, many millions of households in the U.S. and and by extension around the world suffered from these income declines. If you were a household that was living below its means, which meant that you weren't using up all of your income because your expenses were reasonably low or were wisely chosen to be below your income, then when you lost some of your income, you were still okay. You could still balance the budget in particular, without any significant belt tightening or painful measures. But if you are exactly at your means, meaning that your your income statement or budget, as we would call it in the personal space, uh, it just, just balanced, which is a favorable circumstance, but it doesn't give us much wiggle room. And then you're, and by that, I mean your income was exactly equal to all of your expenses. So as long as you include all of your expenses in those calculations, you're in good shape. It means you're paying off your student loans, you're contributing to your retirement plans, you're making all ends meet, paying off the mortgage, but you have no cash left at the end, that's still a reasonably favorable situation because you're you're moving forward in your financial planning. Your net worth is increasing and good things are happening. But if your income suddenly declines by 20, 30%, now you've got a problem because now you're living beyond your means. Your expenses are higher than your income. Right. So that could be problematic. And it was particularly devastating to those households that were already living beyond their means, whose expenses were already higher than their income. And then suddenly the rug was pulled out from under them and their income disappeared or declined dramatically. 
So clearly they suffered the most. And when we're planning proactively, that's exactly a scenario we want to avoid. So that's why it's always better when times are good to look critically at our budgets and aggressively remove any expenses that really don't need to take place. So by trimming down that budget and removing unnecessary expenses, we're doing ourselves a favor in good times, but also in bad times. Well, I just got another thought bubble that I have to just, you know, let out of my face. And that is when you just said, look, when times are good, look critically at our budgets and then aggressively carve out the um, unnecessary or splurgy kind of things. But right away when you said that, gosh, that's another a mantra or a way of thinking about our life in general. When I, I talk to so many faculty members so you know regularly about career development and trying to build a research agenda and build a clinic space and a clinical practice and put in grants and write papers, it's so important that we always also in terms of in addition to finances, look critically on a regular basis, where am I going? How am I headed? How are the winds blowing? Is everything operating uh, okay on my my boat here? And then what can I carve out that I don't need to be doing? What is not mission-centric or what is not aligned with my vision and what can I carve out? So I just want to make that note for people there. I always can't help but make connections to the the wisdom that we can get from being interdisciplinary and, and having these diverse conversations. I'm going to move on with the importance of obtaining life insurance. And of course, not every household needs life insurance, but those that do should be getting it and they should be doing it proactively. Precisely because when something unexpected happens, that's a medical catastrophe globally, people die. We know in the US alone, we're looking at numbers on the order of 700,000, which is just an unimaginable number of deaths directly attributed to this pandemic. Mm -hmm. We know there are probably other deaths which are related to COVID, but haven't been recorded as such. We also know very sadly that many people who survived COVID infection may now be carrying around worse medical conditions than they did before, so that COVID, despite not killing them immediately, is going to shorten their lifespans. In all of these scenarios, proactively having life insurance in place would have been a very important solution. Of course, buying life insurance doesn't mean you don't get sick and it doesn't mean you're not going to pass away early or have health complications thereafter. But it does mean that your survivors, your beneficiaries will receive an income tax-free benefit, which might be hugely important for them to make ends meet, especially if the person who passed away prematurely was a key breadwinner. Right. A reminder, you can't buy life insurance after the fact, it has to be in place mm-hmm. before the bad stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And we can buy life insurance on other people, meaning, I mean, uh, if I'm a responsible mom or dad, I certainly want to have life insurance so that my family can pay bills when I'm gone. But is it true that I can also purchase life insurance on my children? Or could I buy life insurance for my mom or my dad? How does that work? Yes, it is possible to purchase life insurance for others. Could be older members of the family, siblings, children. Some companies purchase life insurance on their executives 
to protect in case they're you know, someone suddenly no longer there who's an important decision maker or breadwinner in the case of households. I believe the key is that if you are going to purchase life insurance on someone else, they have to know and agree to it, right? And, and if we think through that a little more carefully, it becomes clear why that's the case, because you can easily get into some nefarious scenarios where you're buying life insurance on people and suddenly they're not there. <laughs> you get a benefit for them not being there. So you can see why there has to be that transparency. <laughs> I think Forensic Files has, copied, has covered that a, quite a few times. There not you go. that so I had any know. ideas. Not that I'm saying anything. I'm just kind of putting that out there. So since they cover it, we won't need to do that here. Uh, there are people who obtain life insurance for their children. In most cases, life insurance is viewed as a replacement for income that the household requires. And for that reason, many people don't get life insurance on their children because the children are not productively, while children, while students, they're not productively adding cash that the family needs. So it's not so much that we need to replace that. But there are certainly considerations that might lead you to want to do that. Some insurance in particular, permanent life insurance has a cash value component, which can be thought of as a savings component. I should add, since we brought it up, that it's not considered to be an efficient way of saving necessarily because there are relatively high fees associated with buying insurance products. So uh, obfuscating them with investing or savings vehicles can be counterproductive, but those features do exist. And I do know people who have purchased permanent life insurance for their children, relatively small amounts, the examples I'm thinking of, uh, with a view to having a savings account component they're building. In many of these policies, it takes a long time for those savings accounts to grow and compound because there's so many fees up front that undermine that growth. But if you do the math, yes, you can get into some nice numbers that the, the children could end up with in terms of cash value that's saved, which they could cash in at some point. But then, of course, you're also looking at tax implications and so on. So it's it's a bit more, it's more nuanced as most of these things are when we dig a little deeper. Um, most, I would say the vast majority of households don't need to purchase uh, life insurance on children. And uh, again, anyone for whom life insurance is contemplated, we really should put that within the lens of if they're no longer here, what's the financial devastation, if any, to the rest of the family? Right. We don't want to just buy insurance because it's possible, because that means that's money we don't have available for other things like paying down college debts, investing for retirement, et cetera. Got it. So moving on to the next item is to embrace a disciplined, passive approach to investing. I touched on this a little bit in talking about diverse investing. We want to avoid actively trying to time markets by frequently buying and selling financial assets such as stocks. And I'm sure people are aware of some of the hot stocks that have been talked about over the last year or two, and, and some of us may have been tempted to go ahead and buy some of them. And then we've had to live through the gut-churning roller coaster of they go up and we think, oh, this is amazing. And then they dive down and lose a lot of value when we're pulling our hair up. It turns out, and science has supported this assertion, that being a passive investor, meaning we take a long-term view and we don't chase the latest fads, we invest for the long-term, we buy these well-diversified, there's that phrase again, low-fee funds, indexed funds, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds in our various retirement accounts and other investing accounts, and we just let them ride. And occasionally we might rebalance those holdings to make sure they match our risk profile. Lots of info on the website for one for those who want to go through that entire process through some of the ebooks that are on the website. Go step by step through that investing 
thought process and how to actually deploy it. Um, it can, it's, many people don't do it because they find it intimidating, but my hope is that by breaking it down step by step, I'm able to show that it's very simple. There's no rocket science. And once you see it, you realize that you can do it yourself. And of course, the main benefit there benefits are you have more control over your investments and you can save a lot in fees. Mm. That can mean preserving much more of your nest egg for yourself rather than it, that in, than it ending up in the advisor's pocket, putting their kids through college instead of our own kids through college. So it's important to embrace that disciplined approach where we don't just chase the fads because we think everybody else is making tons of money on those. And COVID made it very clear when it suddenly knocked all the markets down, and in particular, those high flyers took a bigger hit, and some of them haven't recovered. Right. I'm thinking of my friend who she and her husband put a lot of money on some airlines during, you know, a lot of people are talking about, oh, this is going to go down, but it's going to go up. And you just made me think, you know, make a note to contact um, my friend to see how that ever worked out for them. I, I don't follow these things. My brain is too small to, to understand this, but I'm curious how they ended up making out. I mean, if, if when we heard about all the airlines kind of dying down and then wondering if the government was going to support them. And so, yeah, I can see how that would be so risky when you think I got to get in because we have these stories that we, these in our collective culture, knowing about how some guy bought a little thing called Apple and then lo and behold. And so you think, gosh, am I going to be you know dumb to not do this? And then, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that worked out for them. Yep. Historically, the, the smart money has been don't chase those opportunities. Keep your money in these well-diversified low-fee funds. Ride the downturns. Use them as opportunities to continue to steadily invest, which many of us continue to do through our retirement plans, right? If every paycheck, we've got some money going into that retirement plan, and that coincides with the period of declines in markets, and that's great because we're buying more units of these funds because the prices are lower per unit because markets decline. So, so this is actually working well for us long term. The key is it's because we don't need that money in a year when the prices might still be depressed if they were all in airline stocks. If we have the luxury of waiting 10, 15, 20 years, then we've bought low and now we have an opportunity to sell high, which of course is the name of the game ultimately, to buy low and sell high. If instead we panic when the pandemic suddenly turns out to be very serious in North America and not just in Asia, and we try to sell everything, then we're selling high and then markets decline. Uh, sorry, um, <laughs> describe that incorrectly, yeah. actually the other way around. But uh, often people will um, panic as the prices decline. And when they reach their low point, that's when people have really totally lost their minds and they sell everything. Yeah. So now they're selling low. And then they're because they're so concerned and they feel so vulnerable, they don't do anything as markets go back up. And then finally, when markets are again near a new peak, that's when they finally look at everyone else and say, everybody's making money. We got to jump back in. And then they jump back yeah. in. And yeah. of course, they've sold low and bought high, which is the opposite of what we want to happen. Ugh. So the only, the best way around that is to just not play that game. Don't try to time the markets and decide when to sell. Just stay invested and continue investing every month. Do your steady thing. If markets are increasing, great. Your nest egg is increasing. If they decline, view that as a great buying opportunity because you've got a long-term perspective. You don't care. In fact, you're happy when markets decline temporarily because your money goes farther. You're able to buy more units of these investments. Hmm. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't check my retirement account every day, or if I do check it, 
the balance. Like I check my, try to check my checking account regularly to make sure that's still there, but I should not go into my retirement account and look at it. Or should I do it, go in and look regularly, but panic and then just exit out of it <laughs> rather than panic and do something about it? I would say if for people who share the circumstances you've described where, the, where they might panic when they see declines, it's probably best to just leave it. You know, check it every quarter when you get a statement, every six months, certainly every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't, because you are committed to leaving those things invested, why put yourself through that roller coaster, as I described it earlier? Just spare yourself that uh, anxiety. Right. So don't uh, check it every four hours. Yeah, don't check it all the time. Exactly. <laughs> okay. With a checking account, it can be wise to check because you're absolutely right. You don't want to forget that you've got some big check coming through and realize that, oh, I, I mistimed some things and I'm going to go into a deficit here and I'm going to get a hit with a fee from the bank. So, of course, you want to make sure that's not happening. Uh, but when it comes to our retirement accounts, because once we're committed to these long-term investments... And we know we're not going to just buy and sell sort of reflexively or um, impulsively because some things are happening in markets because we know it's wiser to just ride all these things out. You know, it takes all of that guesswork out and all of the anxiety, and we just don't need to check it as frequently. And you just and stay, stay the course. You stay the course. And that's, exactly. again, here we go. My brain just kind of took an offshoot. So You're let's reminding us what you know, when we write, those of us who write grants and papers and panic thinking, Oh my gosh, that grant application got triaged. It was unscored. It's not funded. Panic, panic, bah, 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 bah. you know, abort, abort, abort. You know, don't do it anymore. Stop investing in this career. Pivot, invest somewhere else. No, stay the course, calm down, remain disciplined, and have a passive mindset that, okay, what can I learn from this? I'm going to ride this out. I'm not going to panic. We're going to be persistent. And this is a long term view, like you said. That's right. And if we use the COVID era as another way to dig a little deeper, if we go back 18 months or or just a little bit longer than that, so early 2020, when the sky fell and we thought this was the end of the world, which we always think when there's a crisis, less than two years later, 20 months later, what are financial markets like? They're setting new records, Hmm. right? So Having relaxed and remained calm 20 months ago was the best advice because we could have absolutely lost our minds, and some of us probably did, but there was no need to because not that long later, in fact, we didn't have to wait 20 months for that to happen. The stock market recovered within a few months and then went on into pretty steady increases with minor little um, volatility along the way. And similarly, in our own careers, there was a huge panic. Everybody's thinking, oh, my God, my job's going to be gone. What am I going to do? How do I start a new career? This is going to be terrible. It's good to catastrophic. For the most part, people were able to stay in their jobs. Those who wanted different jobs actually were able to find them. We have a million open jobs in our economy right now. So if people really want a job, they can get it. They can upgrade from their current job. They can retrain and, and put themselves in, in much better position than they were two years ago. So remaining calm is the best advice because things work out. Eventually, things do work out. As long as we're disciplined, we make some decent decisions. We're putting ourselves in position for success, whether it's our personal lives, work, or investing, financial planning. That seems to be wise advice across the board. I like that a lot. I just wrote that and underlined it and circled it. Remain calm. That never fails us, I think, in any circumstance. Calm. 
So the final item here was a reminder to avoid procrastination. We've actually touched on this already in how much cash we have lying around is, is a particular example of this importance of avoiding procrastination. If you have a lot of cash lying around, and some of us do, we end up with a bequest, a family member leaves us some money, a business venture goes successfully, whatever it is, we get a big bonus or a big grant, and we get to actually keep some of that money ourselves as part of our salary. Uh, there's cash lying around. We need to deploy it. If we don't need it for our rainy day or emergency fund, then we need to do something intelligent with it. And the longer we wait, the more money we've left on the table, money we can never get back as every day, week, month, and year ticks by. So it's really important to deploy those assets. And imagine if we'd done that through the COVID decline in markets, we'd have made a significant amount of money because markets doubled, tripled um, in the intervening period. So uh, lots of gains could have been made for those of us who didn't procrastinate. Great advice. Again, I I kind of have a sense of, I'm trying not to panic, but there's so much I don't know about this, but every time I talk to you and look at your stuff, I get I get excited thinking like, I need to get into this. I need to learn more about it. But I'm, I'm glad you've helped figure this out for me and for those of us who want to learn more to go to the pillarsofwealth.com and have access to all that that free, really valuable resources. So folks, you've been learning a lot, I'm sure, as have I, from Dr. Yuval Bar Or. Yuval, do you have any parting comments or how can people get in touch with you other than the pillarsofwealth.com? Uh, of course, if you're a member of the Hopkins community, then I welcome emails through the Hopkins uh, system. Otherwise, you can find my email address on the pillarsofwealth.com website. There's a contact us page there, email address is listed, and also you can simply write me a note through the website. Parting thoughts are simply that it's never too late to make good decisions or to make more constructive decisions. And, and your wise words, calm, everybody remain calm. I love that. That's going to be my saying for today. I'm going to carry that around on a stick note. Yuval, thank you so much. And thank you for allowing me to, as always, kind of riff and onto parallel tracks and being patient with me. And Thanks, everybody, for joining in to the Faculty Factory podcast. I hope you tell all your friends about the podcast and go to the website, facultyfactory.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, Yuval. Always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.